here to introduce Mr. Mark Osteen tonight. He is our Writers Live guest this evening. As some of you may know, and for those of you who do not know, April is National Autism Awareness Month. And that's what makes um, Mr. Austin's visit so significant this evening because he has a personal um, con uh, connection to autism. In 1989, he and his wife Leslie, who he refers to as his indispensable partner in, in all aspects of life, had a son, Cameron, um, who was later diagnosed with autism, and he's here to speak to us tonight about his book, One of Us, A Family, a Family's Life with Autism. But before I formally uh, bring Mr. Austin up, I'd like to point out some events we're going to be having here at Pratt over the next coming days and weeks. Um, actually, these are other Writers Live programs starting with tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Here in the Willow Auditorium, we will be having Leon Fleischer, and he will be discussing his book, My Nine Lives, which talks about uh, his life as a child prodigy um, on the piano, and he, as he started out in Carnegie Hall, and then he fell into illness and depression, but then came back. Um, and he made his return to Carnegie Hall in 2003. So he will be here discussing that tomorrow night. On Saturday, April 16th at 3 p.m. at the Light Street Branch, Abigail Grothke, who is an advice columnist with the London Times, will be here discussing her book, Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage. And then on Wednesday, April 27th at 6.30, Dale Quentin Weber, who is an award-winning reporter with the Washington Post, will be here discussing his book, Raw Hide Down, which gives a minute-by-minute -minute account of the near assassination of Ronald Reagan. And that will be here at the Central Branch right here in the Poland. And you can find... Um, this information about these events on the back table and also more events that Pratt has in the coming weeks and months as well on the back table. Born in Libby, Montana, Mark Osteen received his BA and MA degrees from the University of Montana before moving to Atlanta in 1982. There he received a PhD excuse me, Ph.D. in English Literature from Emory University, working with eminent James Joyce scholar Richard Elman. Since 1988, he has taught at Loyola University, Maryland, where he is Professor of English and Director of Film Studies. Osteen has written or edited eight books, including The Economy of Ulysses, American Magic and Dread, Don DeLillo's Dialogue with Culture, and essay collections on economic literary criticism and gift theory. He is currently at work on a study entitled The Big Night, Film Noir, and American Dreams. 
Much of his recent scholarship, however, has focused on autism and disability studies. In 2005, he organized and chaired a conference representing autism, writing, cognition, disability at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. A collection of essays taken from that conference that he edited, Autism and Representation, was published by Rutledge in 2008. Over the last several years, he has given lectures on autism and the humanities at numerous conferences and seminars, including the Boston University Law School, Fordham University's Autism and Advocacy Conference, and the Modern Language Association and South Atlantic Modern Language Association Conventions. In addition to being a scholar, Mr. Osteen is also a professional musician, which he has been since the 70s, and he's an important contributor to the Baltimore scene as a saxophonist and singer since 1994. And he's currently the president, president of the nonprofit Baltimore Jazz Alliance. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Mark Osteen. So as you know, I've written an autism memoir that was uh, just introduced, but maybe a refresher course on what it is would be helpful to some people who may not be up with the current research. So there's the triad of impairments, as they're called. As you can see, the, the, there's a speech-language component, a social cues component, and uh, the repetitive interests component. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the clinical aspects at all today. It's also a spectrum disorder. That's why it's called autism spectrum. By, by that is meant um, there's varying degrees of severity from more severely impaired to just barely, as they say, on the spectrum. And so our son Cameron would be considered more on the moderate to severe end of the spectrum. That means he has very little language. Um, among other things, um, he does have the repetitive interests, the so-called stems. His favorite thing is to play with strings and uh, some maladaptive behaviors and so forth. On the other hand, he's also very funny, energetic, loving, and musical. So he's got positives and negatives about him just like everybody else in the world. Early in his life, he was obsessed with books and um, we think he could read before he was age one. And uh, one of the slides that's coming up is going to explain that. That's why that's there. All right, so as I was writing and revising the book between 2001 and 2008, there was a vast tidal wave of autism books that began to be published. And to tell you the truth, for the first few years, I didn't read any of them because I didn't want to be influenced. And also, I was afraid I would then uh, sort of chicken out and not be able to follow through with, with writing it. After I finished the second draft, then I read a lot of them and was sort of surprised at what I found because autism is a spectrum disorder, you think there'd be a wide variety among the books, but in fact, there's not much variety at all. What I found was um, most of them are very similar. They seem to follow a set of rules, and they have become formula. They tend to collapse this diversity into one narrow set of ideas. And I was struck that very few of them, if any, reflected our life with autism. Where was the insomnia? Where was the aggression? Where was the frustration? Where were the you know, st the stigmatizing, where was the self-stems? The books didn't talk about any of that stuff. Um, so I concluded that these books were only partly true, that they did not represent 
many of the truths about autism that I wanted to tell. Um, and so I vowed to tell those truths, even if writing about them was painful and remembering them was painful as well. So what did I find? Well, I found that Rain Man, which I'm sure you've seen, is, has sort of set the mold of the various autism books. There's Cam, and he's only about one year old there, reading his little book. Um, and it sets up the rules. So here they are. The first rule, if you remember the scene in Rain Man when um, Raymond and Charlie, his brother, played by Tom Cruise, are ready to leave the restaurant, and a box of toothpicks falls on the floor. Remember that scene? And Raymond looks at them and instantaneously knows there's 246 toothpicks in the box, right? Because he's a savant. He's got genius qualities. Well, this is rule number one in most representations of autism in popular culture. They have to be savants. In fact, some, some current research suggests that the population uh, of autistic people with savant characteristics is higher than the average, but still, uh, it's under 10%. Even if it were higher, then the danger, though, is not of inaccuracy. It's that the implication that people with autism are valuable only if they're also geniuses. So people begin to expect that, and if you tell people, oh, we have an autistic son, oh, what's his special skill? Oh, he doesn't have one. So people are very surprised. Second rule. Remember, Ray Raymond has these little quirks. Uh, of course, I'm an excellent driver, he says, and he's actually never driven. And um, he's actually kind of funny. And he's quirky, but not severely disabled. Um, well, that's rule number two. You don't really see the more severely impaired people with autism in any popular cultural representations, or even in books that, by people who should know better, such as parents and siblings. Um, so the implication here is that they're just kind of quirky, and they don't really need long-term supports and services. So in that way, that could be a, that's a dangerous rule. We also remember in Rain Man that Charlie, the brother, is very selfish and arrogant. He's really out for himself. He kind of uses Raymond as a tool for his own advancement to try to get his inheritance from his estranged father. We're supposed to condemn him for that. But in fact, the movie does the same thing. It uses Raymond as a tool to show something about Charlie. The one who changes in the movie is, Char is not Raymond, it's Charlie. So really, Raymond only exists as a kind of yardstick to measure Charlie's growth. That's another rule that we see in a lot of the representations of autism in popular culture in books and movies. The person with autism is not really in the interest, it's the, uh, that other person. The, the, the uh, autistic person is there just to shine a light on the other person. And then they're supposed to vanish. So the problem with these formulas is that they're supposed to bring us close to autistic characters, but actually they don't at all. Actually, they try to serve the needs of what we call neurotypicals, which are you and I, people who do not have autism, but making us feel all good about ourselves. Um, I suspect that they also bear out the hidden desire of these stories, which is that autism and autistic people vanish. Most novels with autistic characters do the same thing. I don't know if you've read Mark Haddon's bestseller, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It would seem to be an exception to these rules because it gets in the side of the mind of Christopher Boone, who's the 15-year-old narrator who has autism, represents how he thinks. And uh, Christopher... <coughs> is a, quite a noble character. He's very heroic. He discovers new abilities. He is... Um, it's actually brilliantly effective at showing his inner world, that he, he maps out his life using mathematics and, and maps and 
um, he does get overwhelmed. There's one once when he's in a train station, we see all these signs that he can't read. Unfortunately, the book does follow the rules also. Um, he's got mathematical gifts, gifts which are close to savantism. He also is quirky, but the quirks aren't really serious. He doesn't like yellow and brown, for example. He doesn't do chatting. Um, and he serves partly as a yardstick for his parents. His mother abandons him. She can't handle him. His father's got an anger management problem. His father, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but um, he's very angry, let's just say. So it does follow the rules, even though in many ways it's better than most of the books. Nonfiction narratives about autism I found are even worse. They perpetuate a whole series of stereotypes, and the, the main stereotype is the heroic parent stereotype. And the prototype of this is Jenny McCarthy's book, um, in which the heroic parent saves her child from autism by finding one magic bullet, and that solves the whole problem. Yeah, see? Um, by the way, vaccines do not cause autism. This is still Jenny's uh, thesis. So these stories dominate the marketplace, and the more true stories are the other stories with other stories about the more severely impaired, about those people who don't quote-unquote recover, and all kinds of other stories never get told. So all these parent memoirs, almost all of them, so could be titled How I Saved My Child from Autism and Became a Better Person. It's really about the parent. It's not about the child at all. So that's rule number four. The person with autism has to be cured, preferably by his or her parent. So why don't I like these? Well, not just that they're inaccurate. I think they also make us feel really good about ourselves for being neurotypical. Oh, look, we care. And they also sort of promulgate this ethos of individualism that if you only try hard enough and really want to get over something, why, well, you can do it? Look at all these other people who did. The problem is parents and family members of people who's with autistic children and siblings who don't get better then feel really guilty. I didn't do something right because I followed everything Jenny told me and I still didn't cure him. I must be doing something wrong. And believe me, if you're the parent of an autistic child, you're guilty all the time anyway. So the last thing you need is more guilt. So, how does my book fit into these? Well, it doesn't. That was my plan. I wasn't tempted to write a cure story because I'm writing a memoir and, well, Cameron is not cured. He remains who he is. Secondly, he's on the more severe end of the, re of the autism spectrum. So, there wasn't really a, he's not enduringly quirky, at least not all the time. He's not going to be cured, and he is severely impaired, and he doesn't have any savant characteristics. So those three rules were easy to get around. Rule number three was a little harder. And this was my focus throughout the book, was trying to keep the focus on my son instead of just on myself, and not make him some kind of symbol for my growth. Um, and to give him a voice. So the idea was to keep the focus on him and let him speak through me. That was what I tried to do. Maybe that's presumptuous. Nevertheless, at some point, there's lessons learned. Even stubborn people like me do eventually learn things. So that's, I hope, something I got out of the process. And my other goal was to help other parents who feel the same as we did, that is isolated, uh, frustrated, guilty, traumatized, um, give them something that they can read and say, look, this person felt this. Maybe I'm not so weird. So I was hope, I'm hoping to help other parents. So why write a book? There's Cam at like age three or four. Those were my two reasons. Okay, so I began to write. And I was writing and I discovered yet another problem. And this is the most difficult problem. And there's Cam in his wastebasket. Um, 
for a while he, he loved to get inside of wastebaskets and he would tip them back and forth until he popped out and then he would get back in it again and then he would do that again for a long time. And he got bigger and bigger and the wastebaskets got bigger and bigger. Pretty soon um, he got stuck in one and it was like um, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, you know, Elmer drops and he can't get out of that little tub to kind of try to pry him out. And so, you know, you put your feet on the wastebasket and try to pop him out of there. And after a couple times of that, he decided maybe that wastebaskets weren't all that cool after all. But th that isn't the narrative problem. The narrative problem is the feeling, uh, it's a, a conflict between two feelings. The family members of people with autism often feel like they live in the movie Groundhog Day, or every day is the same as every other day. The, the, the repetitive behaviors make you feel like it could be last year, the year before, the year before, that they stay the same. And sometimes the children, they get better, but very gradually. So there's a sense that your life is static. Nothing ever changes. Well, how do you write a story about things that never change? That would be a pretty boring story, wouldn't it? And then we did the same thing the next day, and then we did the same thing the next day. So I find myself with a lot of material of which it was very repetitive. Like, well, gee, the last three weeks have been the same as the three weeks before that. And then, on the other hand, family members will testify that they have this, they also have these perpetual interruptions. I'm s I seem to be popping the mic a lot, don't I? There are these sudden outbursts that come from nowhere, chaos. You, you're not, it's not predictable, you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know what to do about it. Well, you can't really narrate that either, because how do you narrate chaos? There has to be some kind of linear progress, some kind of linkage from one thing to another. So there were two conflicting problems. The problem of stasis, everything staying the same, and the problem of chaos, nothing ever staying the same. And as soon as you try to narrate that, you've not done justice to the actual facts because you, you turn it into something smooth then. So how to be true to this was one of the difficulties. Stas stasis, chaos, or both not narratable. We had those in our life. We had, for example, um, his favorite movie is Mary Poppins. And... Uh, he watches that every single night. I mean, every single night. I mean, every single night. So we've seen that, oh, at least at least a thousand times, probably more. So once you talk about Mary Poppins once, I mean, what is there to say, right? It's a good movie, but still. Ooh. And then the chaos was manifest in all kinds of ways, mostly with so-called so maladaptive behaviors, aggression, and so forth. It seemed unpredictable. You try to make sense of that. So, so this was my narrative challenge. So I read the other books, and how did they deal with it? Well, not well. Um, how did they write a story? Most of them wrote a cure story or no, no story at all. And that's why a lot of the parent memoirs tend to devolve into how-to books, self-help books. Well, here's what we did. Try this one. And other books um, don't tell a story at all. There's one called uh, Weather Reports from the Autism Front. And as the title indicates, it's a series of little vignettes. There's no real story because his son in this book, his son's name is Cam, uh, Sam, and the author is uh, James Wilson. Um, Sam doesn't change, so he just gives a series of little vignettes. So there really isn't a story there. There's just snapshots. But I wanted to write a story. So how did I deal with these problems? So this is all by way of introducing what I'm going to read in a minute. Well, with the structure. So I, di I divided the book into three parts. The first part takes us up through um, Cam was about age 11, and it's just narration. It's just straight ahead telling about our journey up to where he went to overnight camp for the first time. And that's where I begin the story, and then I get to that in the end of part one. And then part two is when I deal with what I think is stasis. It does not move the story along. Instead, what I have is a series of essay-like chapters on individual issues, such as toilet training, such as stims, playing, language, going out in public. 
And so these are sort of set off from the narrative and are about, they, they cover many years and they focus on those particular issues themselves. And what I try to capture in these is that the feeling, the, uh, the mind of autism tends to be locally coherent. That is, uh, a love of details and small items rather than the big picture. So I'm trying to be locally coherent in these chapters and focus on the individual elements of Cameron's consciousness and our life with him and show how they, uh, we dealt with them. And then part three um, takes us to the end of the book, um, back to the narrative. And this is when we were reaching the realization that Cameron was not doing very well and that we might have to take some drastic action, maybe even send him to a boarding school before our family kind of fell apart. By the way, there's Cam at age 18. And that look is saying, Dad, don't take my picture. I think maybe it was Leslie that took that picture, actually, wasn't it? Yeah. So now let me read a chapter. And this is a chapter from part two. And I hope we'll conclude that it does not follow the rules, because I was trying very hard not to. And um, <coughs> I hope you'll feel that it also does something to try to capture that conflict between stasis and chaos, uh, maybe even reflect it. And, uh, but I hope I didn't make him a yardstick for my growth. So this one's called In the Echo Chamber. And I'm going to have one more slide for this, so don't let me forget uh, that I have another slide when I get to Cam's glossary, okay? Okay, I use as an epigraph a poem, a part of a poem by Seamus Heaney, the Irish Nobel laureate, and it's a poem of his called By Child. <coughs> and the last few lines read, You speak at last with a remote mime of something beyond patience. Your gaping wordless proof of lunar distances traveled beyond love. Beto, Beto, Cameron is shouting. I pay attention, for he speaks so rarely. But what is he saying? Bathtub? You already had a bath, bud. It's time for bed. That isn't it. He repeats, Beto, Beto, for several minutes, each repetition more emphatic than the last. Finally, he declares, that hurt. That's a rote phrase left over from one of our attempts to teach him not to hit people. It usually crops up completely out of context. This time, though, he's trying to convey something specific. Yet I can't for the life of me determine what it is. Leslie is usually better at deciphering his words, so I call her into Cam's bedroom. What was that all about? I ask her afterward. Something hurt, I think, she answers, shaking her head. You think he really meant that hurt? Yeah, but I'm not positive. After Cam falls asleep, we sit side by side on the sofa, recalling our long struggle to help him talk. We feel frozen in time, beset by scenes and sounds reverberating from years past. Gloss. At 10 months, Cam said hi, then added raisin, kitty cat, dog, cup, and a few other words. By age three, he'd lost most of these and seemed utterly fogged in, confined to some looking glass land where everyone spoke jabberwocky. Gradually, he began to understand a few simple familiar words and phrases, but saying things was much tougher. Sometimes the more we tried, the worse things got. When he was about six, for example, we tried to teach him to frame requests with, I want. I want to go outside, instead of just outside. The goal was to build on single words until he could say full grammatical sentences. But I want flummoxed him, and after a few weeks of this training, he developed a stammer. It was excruciating to watch his brown eyes blink and his lips tremble as he stuttered out, wah, 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 wah. He'd stop, slap his chest, and try again, only to be confounded by the same syllables. 
would give him as much time as he needed, but often he'd get so frustrated he'd just give up and howl or pinch his interlocutor. Then one of our LOVAS, the ABA program that we had, the homeschooling program, therapist began to place her finger on Cam's chin to prevent ticks. Her tactic helped to defeat his stutter. For the entire summer of 1996, when he turned seven, Cam wanted everything in sight. Food, the swing, rides, you name it. His confidence bloomed, his demeanor calmed. When our Lovas supervisor heard that Cam was suddenly speaking in short, clear sentences, she was convinced we'd witnessed a miracle. This is very unusual. Kids who are essentially nonverbal at five, like Cam was, almost never learn to talk. Our elation knew no bounds. Our son had finally broken through into language. But before long, he began prefacing every request with want to go, as in, want to go cheese, yes. Both our supervisor and Cam's school speech pathologist assured us that want to go was a verbal stim, that is a nonproductive utterance, and urged us to get rid of it. We tried. Not want to go, say, I want cheese, Cam. Want to go, I want cheese. The stutter returned. Soon want to go went, and everything else, almost, went with it. Our efforts to improve his speech had only hampered it. We rued our misguided efforts. Hopes budding made its wilting all the more devastating. It's easy to imagine that a deep silence hangs over people with autism, but nothing could be further from the truth, at least in our case. Cam has always been a noisy, histrionic child. He speaks most volubly with his body, and over the years we've learned to interpret this language. The gleeful scissors-kicking jumps, the contented or angry rocking, the myriad wordless shouts, the fine gradations in a face that to the uninitiated seems blank, an entire lexicon of claps. Cam's claps are his personal Morse code. A single clap after he's sung a line or done something he finds remarkable serves as an exclamation point. How about that? A series of claps in front of his open mouth creates a booming effect that means, I'm getting mad or I wish I could tell you what I mean. I won't do that because that'll be too loud in here. Several loud claps in the grimace means, I'm anxious or I don't like what you told me, such as, stop splashing that water outside the bathtub. And let's not forget those declarative rhythmic claps he favors in public places. Cam is here. He also uses a few all-purpose all words, such as Coke, which sometimes means I want a Coke, but sometimes means I want something, or car. I don't know where I want to go, but I want to get out of here. And he never says plain old no. It's always no okay. Les and I inadvertently gave birth to this locution through conversations like this. Cam, do you want to go outside? No. Okay. The two words became a single thought. Those who don't know him are confused by the phrase. Does he mean no or yes? No, okay, he always says. Because it seems to encapsulate Cam's struggle with language. One word cancels the other. Sometimes he gives forth a long stream of syllables that sound like gibberish, but really aren't. Over the years, we've learned to decrypt it. Here's my slide. And these are fanciful spellings, but you'll bear with me. <coughs> this is Cam's glossary. I'm really contented, or I think you're cool, or I'm pleased with myself. After a gymnastics lesson in 2000, Cam's coach told me he seemed to like Louie, another boy in the group. He kept saying Louie, Louie, Louie. I didn't have the heart to tell her he was just naming his own satisfaction. Puka tuka tuka means this is really fun. Hey, ho, ho. I'm deep in thought. Depending upon tone, anything from strong displeasure to panic. Ha, ha, ha fake laugh. Let's laugh. Hmm? That means, are you noticing me? And you're supposed to respond with, hmm? And then that can go on for quite some time. Mahuming. 
I've often speculated, speculated that Cam's expressions are his version of Leslie's quirky wordplay. This woman can't leave words alone. So Watson, which is her pet name for me, we were each Watson. No one was Holmes. We were both Holmes, actually. The other person was Watson, so that means we both wanted to be in charge, doesn't it? Um, that metamorphosed into Wallace, then Walmart, then Walnut, among others. Similarly to P, evolved into Peebo Bryson, and then Bryson. The stupid person is not merely dim, but Dimsky Korsakov, and then, or a nylon head. The cold day isn't chilly, it's chili dog or chili whack. Remember that group? 1975, they had a big hit. You have to be about my age to remember that one, I think. How, we asked, could two such confirmed word lovers manage to produce a nearly wordless child? Though Cam's sounds and multipurpose words do have meanings, they are blunt instruments, poor tools for expressing anything complex or precise. Hence, we've had to become detectives or telepaths, deducing our son's emotions, desires, and thoughts from his facial expressions, gestures, cryptic syllables. We've often failed at this guessing game, partly because his language is so rudimentary, partly because his thinking is so different from ours. At times, we've felt like po Lewis Carroll's poor, beleaguered Alice, protesting to pugnacious Humpty Dumpty that glory doesn't mean, as he claims, a nice knockdown argument. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Unlike Humpty, Cam cannot reinforce his definitions. Instead, his language embodies the Eggman's other major trait, fragility. And once Cam's language shattered, all of the teachers and all of the speech therapists couldn't put it together again. Reverb. Starting when Cam was four, Les and I met yearly with his team of educators and therapists. Each year, we stressed the same points. We could have recorded the conversation when he was four and played it back when he was 11, or actually when he was 15. We think the main focus should be on communication. If he can express his wishes, he won't have to resort to slapping, biting, and pinching. Every year, the team members nodded sagely and outlined a plan. And the next year, Cameron made little or no progress. We seem to live in a gigantic echo chamber where our words bounce back at us year after year. And so did Cam. For years, his spoken language consisted mostly of echolalia. Many experts hold that echolalia, in other words, repeating the last thing that he heard, repeating that back. Many experts hold that echolalia is not true language, that although typical children pass through an echolalic stage that functions as a bridge to true symbolic language, echoing lacks the originality, spontaneity, and give and take of real conversation. Special educator Adriana Schuler and speech pathologist Barry Prisant argue that when an autistic person quotes a TV show or commercial, as many love to do, including Cam, he or she is using only lower brain structures. No real language is being spoken. Famed neurologist Oliver Sacks even claims that Autistic echolalia is purely automatic and carries no emotion, no intentionality. Cam's echolalia did often sound like mechanical parroting. If, for example, we asked him, do you want a banana or an orange? He'd probably say orange. But if we reversed the order, he would say banana. He couldn't seem to remember that we'd offered two choices. Even when we coached him, his improved responses were often just redoubled echoes. Do you want bread? Bread. Don't repeat. Say yes. Yes. Do you want bread? Bread. Yes. But other researchers have shown that echolalia serves a variety of linguistic functions. And autistic authors such as Jasmine O'Neill and Donna Williams write that their childhood echolalia gave them time to process others' words and a way to join conversations. In any case, our own experiences have prov proven Sachs' hypothesis wrong, or at least incomplete. For example, in the bread exchange, Cam isn't just echoing, he's also assenting. Children in prison cite cases of what they call situation association, in which people use echolalia to comment on their surroundings by linking current activities with previous events or occasions. 
Sometimes the scripts have a metonymic relationship with the circumstances. A metonym is an association with something else, like the White House made a statement today. So that's a, that's a metonym. So when Cam at four wanted to end a speech therapy session, he used a memorized script. Take your shoes off, he'd say, by which he meant put your shoes on, because when you put your shoes on, you're ready to go home. So it was a two-level, two levels removed from what he actually meant. So take your shoes off meant let's go home. That's a metonym. Cam still uses phrases he learned from those old toddler books that we memorized when he was two, or kids' songs to express himself. Hence, when he looks at Lesser Me and says, guess what, Max? We're supposed to respond with, what? And the next sentence in the book, Max's Christmas, which he memorized at age two, and then we have to recite the entire book. These questions and answers may not be true conversation, but they do involve give and take, shared attention, and associations. They are his way of asking for help or intimacy. Others can misinterpret these phrases. Once Cam's teacher called home, all excited that he'd said, what happened? Be calm. Who are you talking to? She had no idea that these were phrases misquoted from Max's Christmas. Sometimes an echo's meaning is quite clear. One morning, for example, he bounded into our room, crawled into our bed, and led us through Barney's theme song. I'm not going to sing that song because you guys all know how that one goes, I'm sure. He knew exactly what he meant, and so did we. I've actually always hated that song, but when Cam sang it, the saccharine sentiment seemed to carry a redeeming poignancy. Such incidents inspire wonder at his capacity to comment on his world, to compensate for his disability by selecting the right script. And once in a while, his ritualized monologues become less cryptic as he composes an idiosyncratic mashup that mixes, mixes snatches of songs, words, and near words in a strange and be- beautiful poetry. <laughs> it's as though he's traveled to some distant place and reporting what he's seen there. Who could doubt that these strategies, which Paul Collins likens to magpie building its nest from stray flotsam, that these strategies display creativity and intelligence. Yet Cam's inability to generate novel phrases remains deeply debilitating. Sometimes, for instance, the rote scripts interfere with his meaning. Let's say he wants to go for a ride and we ask him to use proper words. Cam, what do you want? Car. Can you say, I want to go in the car? Car, yes. I want, want, to go, go in the bed. Why does he say bed when he means car? Because in the precedes bed in the memorized phrase, sleep in the bed. He seems to forget the original request once the sentence is broken into parts. And instead of recalling that in this context the phrase ends with car, he lets the script in the bed usurp it. Yet he knows full well that bed is the wrong answer. So after saying bed, he'll growl or clap angrily, as if to say, damn it, I don't know why I said that, because it isn't what I meant. Sentences are thin-shelled eggs. Once broken, they can't be reassembled. We neurotypical people flip through our mental Rolodex until we find the appropriate word with the right nuances. Usually we retrieve at least an approximation. But even when Cam has used a particular word many times, he still must hunt laboriously for it, like someone looking for pictures in a dark, crowded attic. He'll stare into your eyes and scan your face intently. You gaze back at him, trying to will the words into his mind. He grabs the closest approximation, a garbled word, a metonym, but there may be no picture for what he wants to say. How, for example, can his concrete mind convey something like, I'm anxious about entering this noisy, unfamiliar building. Shouting Coke won't really do the job. When Cam was about nine, we started using assistive technology devices. The first was an EasyTalk machine, which is a console of large buttons with pictures pasted on them. You push the button, and it says a recorded phrase. We replaced that with the Language Master, which is cards with recorded strips on them, and they run them through, and they say phrases. It was eerie to hear my voice trying to make routine outings. Go to Burger King. 
sound like glorious escapades. Eerier still was the feeling that the machine had snatched Cam's lost words from the ether to give them fleeting expression. The machine said what he couldn't and said it clearly every time. But we could never create enough cards for all the possible situations in his life. The machine could not say, I feel sick, or I'm afraid, or that sound hurts my ears. Noted autistic author Temple Grandin writes that she thinks not in words but in pictures. We've wondered, does Cam? Is his head filled with a slideshow of captionless illustrations? If so, does he maintain that voice in his head that comments on his activities, makes long and short-term plans, tells him what to do next? Sachs theorizes that many autistic people can't connect individual experiences into a continuous narrative and thus exist in what he calls a pure present of vivid, isolated moments, unconnected with each other or with themselves. Anyone living in such a pure present would seem to lack the self-awareness that we identify with true human consciousness. Our son has sometimes behaved as if he lived in a pure present, failing to remember an activity from one day to the next, or not recognizing people he's known for years. But sometimes he says something so appropriate, you know he must tell his own story. For instance, when he was about five, we drove from Baltimore to Atlantic City so I could take the test to become a Jeopardy contestant. By the way, I failed the test miserably. But later on, I took it again, and I passed. So anyway. the long day tapped out Cam's shallow reserves of patience. As we wearily rode the elevator back to the parking lot, two grizzled gents, reeking of smoke and stale liquor, boarded the car with us. This was the final indignity. As soon as the door thumped shut, Cam started shrieking. Then suddenly, he stopped and shouted with perfect clarity, I need to go crazy! One of the casino habitués nodded sa sagely and said, We feel the same way, kid. Cam had made perfect sense. This elevator's too small, I don't know these people, and I want to scream. Such moments prove that he does narrate his life, and even has some understanding of his condition. They also remind us of how often he reaches for words but comes up empty. And they make me wonder, does he think fluently in words, but stumble only when trying to say them? Other linguistic eccentricities invite further speculation. For example, Cam often uses I for you and he for I. Since nobody's ever called him I, he figures, with sound autistic logic, that he is he. But he's not sure. So he takes a middle ground and finds a pronoun that combines he and I. E, take a bath. If a person has trouble using I, you have to wonder if he thinks of himself as an I. Perhaps Cam lives at a distance from himself, responding to his own acts with bewilderment, as if they've issued from some other he, maybe the other person he calls into being when he likes to stop and watch his hands make shadows on the wall. On the other hand, as it were, perhaps the problem is that he can't imagine himself as another person might see him. Such a theory of mind dysfunction, that is, the notion that autistic people don't understand others' thoughts, would suggest that Cam's problem is not that he's too distant from himself, but that he can't distance himself from his own thoughts and actions, can never see outside his own obsessions, never bridge the walls of his echo chamber. I'm going to take a drink. Because our son was so aloof and so seldom talked, we fell into the habit of treating him as if he couldn't hear. By the way, it's a very bad habit. When he was very young and nothing seemed to penetrate his cocoon, he might as well have been deaf. In later years, however, he occasionally showed us quite plainly that he understood our words. One day I was talking with our head therapist about how hard it was for Cam to think of the right words and started recounting the history of his language problems. After a couple of minutes, he put his head on her shoulder, then approached me, growling and gnawing fiercely on his rubber chew toy. The truth dawned on me. I think he wants us to stop talking about him, I said. I think it bothers him. 
she nodded. First he seemed to want sympathy, and then it acted embarrassed, and finally irritated. I realized with chagrin that we'd been treating him like an infant or a pet. Our life might have been easier if he were. At least then we could reliably estimate his cognitive abilities. One morning after Les told Cam, then aged 11, that he could not go outside until after breakfast, he launched into one of those wordless monologues, concluding with a phrase that sounded like, that's annoying. Did you hear that? Les said to me. I did. Is that even possible? We shook our heads, wondering all over again if normal language lay somewhere in his brain, misfiled and unavailable. When those spotlights of comprehension shine through the fog of the disorder, you no longer trust your judgment. The worst such moments, such as a fateful evening when he was about six when he shouted, trapped, only make his condition more agonizing for all of us. In the wake of such utterances, our hard-won accommodation to reality is, like Humpty's shell, shattered all over again. The night Cam shouts, Beto, I have a dream I've had before. I'm falsely accused of some vague crime. Though innocent, when I try to defend myself in court, I'm tongue-tied. I literally cannot open my mouth. I wake in a cold sweat and stumble into the bathroom to wipe my face. I think about how in barbaric societies, traitors and informers get their tongues cut out. As I look in the mirror, it strikes me that my nightmare is my son's waking life. Cam has never done anything wrong, yet he spent his life in effect tongueless. A wave of nausea courses through me. <coughs> I gag. Eventually, I push down the sickness, but there's no more sleep that night. The next morning, Les calls me into Cam's room. Bunny, look at this. She points to Cam's big toe. It's bruised and blue, the cuticle crusted with dried blood. Oh, my God, I say. Big toe. That's what he was trying to tell us last night. How stupid am I? I thought he was saying bathtub. I had dismissed his words as echolalia. His meaning now seems obvious. His toe was throbbing, but he couldn't make his dense parents understand. That hurt. Thinking again of the hardships my son faces every day, I'm briefly overcome by sadness. <clears throat> but then I realize that in trying to communicate, despite his disability, and seeking to escape from his echo chamber, Cam displays what the poem calls something beyond patience, something like heroism. He's never given up trying to talk. How then can we ever stop listening? All right, so there he is smiling. I want to make sure I get one of Cam actually smiling. Talk about what, I, in fact, I did learn, if I'm going to be a yardstick, which I'm not, but what I did learn. Well, first that when you have a child with autism in your family, the whole family is autistic. It's a family condition. Everybody becomes autistic in positive and negative ways. And we were that way for a long time. We became, as I said, rigid, isolated, uncommunicative, anxious. And later we tried to figure out ways we could become autistic in more positive ways, and that requires you to sort of accept your own disability, that is, your, your inability to cure him, that he's going to be himself, and that you're not him. Second, I, I learned that I lived with a prejudice about intellectual abilities, because I was good in school. I decided early on that that was what really me measured value, that people who were, uh, had verbal facility and got good grades were somehow worth more than other people when we realized that Cameron probably had an intellectual disability and I had to come face to face with his prejudice. Either he was less than human somehow or I was just wrong. That I based my life on a lie. And that was a big moment for me to understand that um, some of my uh, foundational principles, my tenets, my values were wrong. Third, uh, I learned that most of our actions in regard to Cameron, or at least many of them, 
and those of other parents of autistic children are governed by guilt. Um, I was mad a lot, but I came to understand that what was underneath the anger was grief and guilt. You know, you're grieving for the child you didn't have, for the child that you do have, for uh, lost possibilities, your own childhood. But guilt is what drives parents to pursue fad cures. It makes them try all kinds of crazy things that they shouldn't try. It follows you around like a stray dog, ready to, you know, pounce on you in your weakness. And I learned that although it's natural to try to point figures, everybody wants to blame someone. You want to blame, you know, toxins or something I did wrong or whatever it was. That the, uh, the hardest thing to accept, but the most important thing to accept is that nobody's to blame. That this is just it. This is just it. You know, having all that guilt gives you power. It means, oh, if only I'd done something differently, you see, then he'd be fixed. So really then it becomes about you and your power that I, I want to give myself some kind of responsibility. But I <coughs> came to this conclusion with lots of conversations with my wife and through the years that you know, it's kind of like a narcotic addiction, blame. Um, it cuts you off from everybody else, just like other addictions, and it, it first makes you feel really good, and then it kind of eats you up. Like a, just like other addictions. So I tried to learn how to break that addiction. Unfortunately, the autism community as a whole is not as, as, as a blame addiction. They always are pointing fingers somewhere. Fourth, I learned that Cam was not my shadow or projection of my dreams, that he's his own person. With and without his autism, he's got his own desires, preferences, and needs that have nothing to do with me. And so I came to be able to see that after I started accepting him as he was. So I learned that the book was really about acceptance toward the end of the writing, that I thought it was going to be about survival, but really it's about trying to accept him as he is. And that was very liberating to find out that <coughs> I didn't, we didn't necessarily do anything wrong, that it was okay for him to be himself. And uh, as you say, he doesn't walk around all day going, oh, God, I'm so sad because I'm autistic. Look at that smile. He's in the moment right there. He's having a good day. So kind of acceptance was the, the real truth that I found and the, the actual the labor of writing the book helped me achieve that, that place where I could get there. And so that's why the t it's called One of Us because that was my ultimate, I guess, journey was to accept that, that he is you know, human, but more so. So I'm, wi I'm willing to entertain questions, comments, whatever you'd like to ask or, or talk about. Vaccines that have some kind of either some kind of other name or mercury, some kind of, some kind of uh, chemical yeah. that uh, they really did did cause it because they say, well, before he did this, before he took this, he was okay. Right. And then after that, there's a big thing. Yeah. Well, they're mistaking a correlation for a cause. Um, autism starts manifesting itself right around the time that many kids get lots of that get lots of vaccines. So, gee, one day he was fine and the next day he wasn't. But I bet if they looked carefully, they would see that there were symptoms there. There were signs already before that. And by the way, there's no thimerosal in vaccines now. And autism rates continue to go up. So if that were the case, you know, that, that causality wouldn't exist like that, would it? I, you know, I, I can see why they might believe that. Because mercury poisoning does cause neurological, you know, problems. It causes like the March, like the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland, right? Their Hatters were mad because they, had, they were poisoned by mercury. But um, it's, it's exactly what I said. People want to point a finger and they want to have a magic bullet. Oh, it's just this. That's it. That's the answer. 
if we just take that away, it will all be solved. But the science really isn't there. I'm sure Dr. Gonzalez can talk more about this than I could. But you know, the, the, the authors of the original study have all recanted but one person. And they actually admitted that they fudged their data. So, and it hasn't been replicated by anyone. So I think we, we can be pretty safe saying that that's not scientifically grounded. Yeah, Gail? No one really knows, but a couple of books I read are very persuasive in arguing that much of it's attributable to diagnostic substitution. And, you know, the diagnosis is really expanded from what it used to be. You know, you have people who, you know, even 10 years ago would never have been diagnosed with anything on the autism spectrum. And now they have the diagnosis because they get services that way. And also the statistics show that as autism diagnoses have risen, diagnoses of intellectual disability or mental retardation have plummeted. So... The people who were once diagnosed as retarded now get an autism diagnosis. I don't know if that can explain all of it, but it explains a lot of it. I've read a couple of really good books using so a sociology of medicine uh, scientific approach to argue that um, it also has to do with the empowerment of parents and the removal of uh, total diagnostic power from the med medical profession. So now parents are empowered to be their own experts. And so they consult a lot of people, and they diagnose themselves, and the diagnosis is expanded so broadly. I wouldn't rule out some kind of environmental component at all. There seems to be a genetic element there, are many, several genetic elements, but I don't think there's an epidemic in the sense that all of a sudden people have tuberculosis more because they're getting infections. 